Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Titus. We're studying through this letter that Paul wrote to his associate Titus during the summer months. And this morning we come to the end of chapter 1. Titus 1, verses 10 through 16. Please give your full attention to God's word. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and the unbelieving, nothing is pure but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. This past week I was reading an article in the New York Times. It's actually an article from a couple of years ago, but the title is what caught my attention. The title of the article was, How do you know when a society is about to fall apart? And the article basically is an interview, the, the author of the article interviewed most of the big name experts in the areas of history and archaeology, sociology, that deal with the downfall of civilizations, the collapse of great world empires and broader civilizations. And so a lot of interesting information in there, but one of the things, as I read the article, basically one of the things that was most uh, most glaringly seen in societies that collapse was the rise of what I would call the curse of bureaucracy. In other words, as a society grows, the society itself must become more complex because the, as it gets bigger, the challenges that it faces are bigger, and so it just the, the structures of society, institutions of society become more complex, and you have to come up with more complex methods of solving those problems that come with it. And what happens is that then the society is best based less on what the author calls kinship. And what he means by that is the kinship that people have with one another, the like-mindedness, the same worldview, the same values, local authority, local action, distribution of goods that is mostly local. The, the bigger a society gets, the more complex it gets, and it loses that sense of kinship and what ties it together. And so what you end up having is an increasing reliance upon top-down, centralized authority in order to hold the society together. And what you then have is an attempt to have unity in a society by coercion, by top authority, and as opposed to unity that is internal, based on a similar worldview and values and a way of looking at things, the ideas that, that bind a people together. So what that means is, as we look at world history, it's plainly obvious that most 
societies, most great civilizations, don't collapse due to war or natural disaster or plagues or famines, not external factors that come against that civilization, but internal factors like worldview and values. In the article, he actually, as I said, it was written a couple years ago in the context of the pandemic that we've all been going through. And what he does is he compares the way that our society, American society, has responded to this pandemic compared to 100 years ago when the Spanish flu was a pandemic in our country, killed 675,000 people. 100 years ago, we had more of a kinship in our society, more of a, of a shared worldview and a shared value system, a shared morality system. And so when the pandemic of the Spanish flu hit, it actually had a very short-term effect on financial issues and structures in society, recovered quickly, and the United States went on in the next 50 years to become a world superpower. But what we've seen with the pandemic of the last couple of years is that it's led to actually disintegration in the society. We've got supply line issues because our supply issues are so global, so interconnected. We have uh, serious um, riots, racial riots, battles over moral issues, political infighting, and serious economic problems. The point of the article is, is that it's not a matter of if this society is going to fall apart and collapse, but when is it going to? Let's take a moment to thank the Lord that our hope is not in this society. Our hope is not in this world. Our hope is not in our country. Our hope is not in any earthly entity. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ says, my kingdom is not of this world. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. His kingdom is the one that was promised, that was prophesied by the prophet Daniel. He was given that tremendous vision where he saw the boulder carved out of the mountain that rolled down the hill and smashed the statue which represented the great empires of Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome. And Daniel interpreted the meaning of that vision given by God in this way. He said, in those days, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. That's the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And praise God, I hope that all of you here this morning are citizens of that kingdom the kingdom that will spread to the ends of the earth and will never fail. The church universal and the church invisible will never fail. It'll never fall. It'll stand firm until Christ comes back to make it and all of creation perfect. But individual churches can and have and will fall. Individual denominations can and have and will fall. And they're going to fall for the same reason that this article says all great societies fall. It's going to fall because it loses a shared sense of worldview 
and ideas and values and morality. When that happens to a church, it'll fall. Last week, we saw in the beginning of the letter that Paul wrote to his associate Titus, he left him, he said he left him there on the island of Crete in the Mediterranean Sea. He left him there on Crete to work with these unformed churches, churches that had been planted through the preaching of the gospel of Paul and Titus, but they have not yet been formed. They didn't yet have structure. They were not ready to be established as full uh, operating churches. And so Paul left Titus there in order, it says in verse 5, to put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town. And then last week we looked at the qualifications that were given to Titus, what type of men were to be made elders in the church, to lead the churches. And in that description, those, those characteristics, the, the ultimate description, the final description he gives, final characteristic is in verse 9. He says, this elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. The elder of the church must be able to hold firm to the teachings that have been handed down by the prophets and the apostles in the inscripturated word of God. He must be able to teach that truth to others and rebuke those who contradict it. And that's where he turns his attention in the passage for this morning. Scripture defines the worldview for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Scripture defines our values, our morals, our mission, our goals. It is the foundation of the church. And if that foundation is firm, then no external attacks, no external sufferings, no persecutions can bring that church down. But if it departs from that foundation, if it compromises that foundation, it will fall. And so Paul proceeds to warn Titus about the most serious threat to the church on the island of Crete, to all the churches in the New Testament era, and to every church throughout history up until this moment. The most serious threat to a church are false teachers and false teaching. And that's what he addresses here at the end of chapter 1. The enemies within the church. In verse 10, he begins by saying four. And what he's doing is he's tying what he's about to say to what he has just said about the elder's job to hold firm to the truth, teach the truth, and defend the truth. And he goes on to say in verse 10, four, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. Already, as a matter of fact, I think Satan especially attacks a, a, a young, vulnerable church before it's been fully established and fully organized. A warning for our church in Belfont that that's when Satan's going to attack, more, more so than other periods in its, in its history. Much of the New Testament is written to either rebuke false teachers or to warn God's people to be on guard against them. If you take the New Testament seriously, you must take false teachers and false teaching seriously because so much of the content of the New Testament is addressed either to rebuking false teachers or warning God's people to be on guard against them. Jesus and the apostles reserved their harshest condemnation for false teachers. And based on the teaching of 2 Peter and, and the letter written by Jude, in the New Testament, 
I personally believe that the deepest, darkest pits of hell are inhabited by false teachers because you cannot do more damage than, people, than to lead people spiritually away from the truth. Jesus said that we would know false teachers in the church by their fruit. That's because false teachers are not preaching the true gospel. False teachers are not regenerated. They're not born again. They do not have the Holy Spirit. And so whatever fruit you may see in their life is fake. It's not the fruit of the Spirit. False teachers, matter of fact, the reason that false teachers are able to gain influence and power and authority in the church is because usually they're charismatic, they're effective communicators, they display gifts that leaders out in the world have that make them successful out in the world, but they're not born again and they're not preaching the true gospel. They may give the appearance of being a teacher of the word of God, but ultimately they're not true teachers. Paul begins by describing their character. And this is important because often, like I said, you think of the false teachers that have corrupted churches in history. They, they're beloved by the people. They come across, like I said, they're charismatic, they're warm, they're friendly. But you've got to look below the surface. You've got to look to the heart. And that's what Paul does. He unmasks false teachers to show what their true heart is like, what their true motivation is. Is like, first of all, he says false teachers are rebellious. In verse 10, Paul begins by describing them as insubordinate. Insubordinate to what? Insubordinate to who? They're insubordinate to Christ and they're insubordinate to his word. They do not accept the authority of Christ or his word and they try to set themselves up as an authority. And we'll see how they do that in a moment. They reject the trustworthy word as taught, as Paul said that elders must do in verse 9. They reject that trustworthy word as taught, and they contradict it, and they add to it. Secondly, false teachers are liars and hypocrites, he says. In verse 10, he calls them empty talkers and deceivers. Satan is called the father of lies. Satan caused the very first sin, the Garden of Eden, by lying to Eve and questioning the authority of the Word of God when he said, has God really said? Because Satan is a liar and false teachers represent him. He's the father of lies. In verse 12, Paul quotes a Cretan prophet, a prophet from the island of Crete and actually the early church fathers who were closer to the, to the event, so probably we can trust their word that early church fathers believed that the prophet that Paul is quoting here was a, a prophet, a miracle worker, a uh, teacher named Epimendes, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but he was um, on the island of Crete. He was probably one of the most famous uh, philosophers, prophets on the, on the island of Crete about 600 years before Christ. And they believe this quote, they taught, said that this quote came from him where he says, that Cretans, speaking of his own people, he, grew, he, was, he was a citizen of Crete. He says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Cretans are always liars. That was the defining characteristic of Cretan culture is that people lied, deceived, were hypocrites about who they were and what they truly believed. 
kind of begs the question, if, if this was a prophet who was from Crete, who said that all Cretans are liars. Was he lying about saying that all Cretans are liars? <laughs> now, Paul's obviously speaking in generalizations here. Not every single person from Crete was a liar, but that was their defining characteristic. The culture was built upon lies and deception. And so what Paul is saying here is these false teachers are reflecting their culture. They're all about deception. Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. It is still true today that within the church, within the flock of the sheep of God's people, there are wolves who have dressed themselves up like sheep, who have put on an outward appearance of being Christian. They use the name of Jesus Christ. They speak of the one true God. They even sometimes will appeal to the scripture. But ultimately, their intent is to deceive and to lead people away from the authority of Christ in his word. They use the language and traditions and symbolism of the church, but they mean something else by it. In verse 16, Paul says, they profess to know God, but deny him by their works. And Paul, speaking of the false teachers that Timothy dealt with in the city of Ephesus, he says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, that these false teachers have the appearance of godliness but deny its power. Because the power of godliness is the gospel. And if you're not preaching the true gospel, there is no power for godliness. There is no power to transform a sinner's life unless you're preaching the true gospel. So false teachers are rebellious, False teachers are liars and hypocrites. And then thirdly, false teachers are selfish and self-centered. Paul goes to the very core of what drives a false teacher in verse 11. He says they were teaching for selfish gain. Now remember, all these characteristics are kind of the opposite of what he said elders should be. Elders, he said, you're, you should be for the faith of God's people. You should be training and mentoring and discipling people for the sake of their faith in Christ. You are serving them. But Paul says false teachers are teaching for selfish gain. They teach for their own glory, for their own financial gain in many cases. And certainly today we see many who claim to be teaching God's word, but actually are teaching for worldly gain and financial gain. And it was true in the first century as well. They want to glorify themselves. And they're using the name of Christ to do it. They may appear pious and loving on the surface, but their hearts are unregenerate. They reflect that Cretan culture. Paul said that Cretans had a reputation not only for being liars, but for being evil beasts and lazy gluttons. What that speaks to is their selfish, self-centered nature. They live to fulfill their desires, live to fulfill their lusts, live to fulfill their own self-glorying, self-satisfying, materialistic desires. Like animals, they live to, er to, li to satisfy their earthly appetites. That's why, you know, Paul does that. He's, he doesn't hesitate to call some who attack Christ, who are opposed to Christ, who are enemies of Christ. He doesn't hesitate to call them animals, beasts. 
because they are living according to their own appetites. They're living according to this world. They're living according to the flesh. They're not living according to the image of God that has been placed upon them. They live for the flesh and not for the spirit. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul describes false teachers in this way. He says, they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They serve their own appetites. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. False teachers are rebellious. They're liars and hypocrites. And they are selfish and self-centered. Having given that picture of the character of false teachers, having unmasked them, taken away the sheep's clothing, shown them for being the wolves that they are, he then talks about the nature of their teaching. And the way he describes the false teaching, and we have to kind of infer some things about what the false teachers are actually teaching based on how Paul responds to it here in the book of Titus. But it fits into a pattern of false teaching that the early church was dealing with, and we still have vestiges of in the church today. There were many Jewish people on the island of Crete. We know that from history, that a lot of people, when they were, especially when they were uh, driven out of the uh, first 10 in the population, a lot of Jewish people on the island of Crete. And Jewish in their heritage, in their lineage, in their, in their ethnicity, they were Jewish, but they had professed faith in Jesus Christ. And, and Jesus also had to keep the Old Testament. Ceremonial laws and rituals that were shadows of Christ, that Christ fulfilled, that the, that the apostles who were appointed by Christ to teach the truth said were fulfilled by Christ need, no, needed no longer to be uh, practiced like circumcision. But these of the circumcision party would say, no, you must be circumcised or you can't be saved. You must follow the Old Testament ceremonial laws. You must celebrate the ceremonial feast. You must go through all the ceremonial rituals. You must be fully Jewish in order to be a Christian. And by that sense, a, a, a legalistic Judaism, the kind of Judaism that rejected Jesus Christ as the Messiah. So you had legalism being brought into the church. People teaching that you had to do good works in order to be saved were in the churches in Crete. And so this brings us to one of the key characteristics of false teaching that you still see prevalent in the church today, which is distorting and adding and taking away from God's word. Be on guard about teachers, writers, speakers who will add to, take away, or distort God's word. In verse 14, it says, they devoted themselves to Jewish myths. What's he referring to there? Well, these of the circumcision party, in an attempt to impose their legalistic Judaism upon the church, they would make up stories. They had these fanciful stories that weren't from Scripture, weren't from the Old Testament, but they were about Old Testament people like Moses and David and Isaiah. These were myths. They weren't history like the Scriptures record. They were myths. And they added it to God's Word and used it to support their false teachings. And so... They were adding myths, but he also says, and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. In other words, man-made rules, man-made rituals, man-made types of worship, man-made practices, all man-made, not from the word of God, things that were added to the word of God. That's what the Pharisees did. 
How often in his earthly ministry did Jesus confront the Pharisees because they added to God's word? God's law wasn't enough for them. They added a lot of man-made laws. Well, that's what these of the circumcision party were doing. And again, adding, keeping laws to the gospel so that it was no longer the gospel. God repeatedly warns us in his word not to add to or take away from his word. It's in the beginning, it's in the middle, and it's the end. In the beginning, in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, in the book of Deuteronomy, in chapter 12, verse 32, it says, everything that I command you, you shall be careful. word. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 30, verses 5 and 6, it says, every word of God proves true. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Verses 18 and 19. It says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life. And that's exactly what false teachers do. They add to, take away, and twist the word of God. And God's word most severely condemns that practice. You see... This book, from beginning to end, is about Jesus Christ. From beginning to end, from the Old Testament, from Genesis to Revelation, it's all about Jesus Christ. And so if you add to this, you're adding to Christ. You take away from this, you're taking away from Christ. The word of God is sufficient, and it shows us the one that we must believe in. And we must believe in him exactly as he's been revealed to us in his word. If you add to Christ, you take you. If you add to the Word of God, you add to Christ. If you take away from the Word of God, you take away from Christ. If you twist the Word of God, you're twisting the revelation about who God is, and you end up with a different gospel. There are two major monotheistic religions besides Christianity in the world: Islam and modern Judaism, and both of them add to, take away from, and twist the Word of God. Every cult that we know about adds to and or takes away or and definitely twists the word of God. The liberal mainline churches that have departed from the authority of scripture add to and take away from and twist the word of God. These are wolves in sheep's clothing. And if they are allowed to continue, they will destroy the church. The second characteristic that Paul was facing that we still face today is that false teachers are always compromising with the world. They're always trying to please the world. They're always trying to gain acceptance by the world. Why do false teachers want to distort and add to and take away from God's word? So that they can make it more appealing to their own sinful desires, but more importantly, more appealing to the world that they're trying to please. Commentators believe that the dominant false teaching in Crete was not only based in a wrong understanding of the Old Testament of these Judaizers, these these people of the circumcision party, but also it was influenced by Greek philosophy. It's the same mix of Jewish legalism, not Jewish, not gospel, not biblical Judaism of the Old Testament, but Jewish legalism that developed without Christ, It's a combination of that with Greek philosophy. It's the same thing that Paul wrote about in the book of Colossians. It's the same false teaching that Paul warned Timothy about when he did his ministry in Ephesus. 
And what it was is you take this legalism and you add to it this idea from Greek philosophy and Gnostic teaching, the idea that the material world is evil, the material world is at least unimportant if not evil, and it's the spiritual realm is where real life happens, where real salvation is found, is to get away from the physical world and get into the spiritual world through knowledge or through experience, through something. That was the Greek philosophy that they tied together with Jewish legalism. So what you have is this legalism providing the way for people to get away from the, to deny their physical desires, to deny the, to deny the, the physical world, to enter into the spiritual realm. That, that's what, again, trying to put, piece together what the New Testament teaches about a false teaching that permeated a lot of these areas. Sounds like that's what's happening at Crete as well. And that's why Paul says in verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. He's addressing that issue that asceticism, you know, self-denial, legalism is never going to make you pure because it doesn't deal with sin. Paul is defending the gospel when he says that because there's only one way to be pure in the sight of a holy God and that is to be cleansed by the blood of Christ. There's only one way to be pure in the sight of God. It's for Christ's blood to be shed in your place as he died in your place on the cross and for his resurrection to bring about your justification by his robes of righteousness being placed upon you so that in the eyes of God, he has washed away your sin, you are forgiven, you are clean in his sight, and you also are seen as righteous because Christ has given you the gift of his righteousness by faith. That is how you become pure in the sight of a holy God, and it's all about what Christ does, nothing about what you do. Christ does it to you. Christ makes you pure. And Paul is saying, if you are pure in the eyes of God because of Christ dying for your sins, then everything is pure. The whole universe is pure. God created all things. All things created by God is good. Satan never created a single thing. Satan only corrupts things. He never creates anything. Everything created by God is good. And so if you're pure, then the universe is pure to you because it's God's universe. But if you're impure, if you're not cleansed in the blood of Christ, if he has not cleansed you and made you pure by his work, then everything is impure because everything you touch, everything you interact with, everything you do, is tainted by your sin, and you still stand before a holy God under condemnation and judge because of your sin. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. And so, what this false teaching does is attempt to provide another way to God, to provide another way more acceptable in the eyes of the world to God, to compromise with the teachings and values of the world to get to God, and it's a false gospel, and it's, a, it's not the Jesus of Scripture. The Israelites, when they worshiped at the foot of Mount Sinai, they were worshiping, they said, Yahweh, the one true covenant God of Israel. They're worshiping the one true God, but they worshiped him by means of a golden calf because that's how the pagan nations around them worshiped God. That's how they approached God, was through idols. And so they added a golden calf to their worship. They compromised, and they created a false gospel. I grew up in a liberal mainline church that didn't preach the gospel, used all the same words, used all the labels, all the terminology of Christianity, but reinterpreted the words. 
It was, it was deceptive. It was lies. They pretended to represent Christ, but the Christ that they preached was not the Christ of the scriptures. And the salvation that they offered was not the salvation of the scriptures. It was a false gospel, a different Jesus. So having unmasked all that, as unpleasant as that view is, the fact that we in the churches have wolves in sheep's clothing, what must we do? Obviously, he's already said the elders have the job of protecting the church, and they need to do their job. But what must we do in general? All of us, what must we do? The necessary response to false teaching Paul gives us in verse 11, he uses language here that is forceful and unequivocal. They must be silenced. It is a, in the original language, it's a very rare word that he uses. And it's a very harsh word. Literally, it means to muzzle an animal. Put a muzzle on him. Gag his mouth. Stop him. You must silence the false teacher. What an appropriate image to use when he's talking about beasts, as he calls them. Those who live like animals according to their selfish earthly desires. They're wolves. You need to muzzle them. Don't have a seminar and put them on a panel. Don't give them a fair hearing. Don't give them equal airtime. There's no such thing in the church of Jesus Christ as free speech when it comes to lies. In chapter 3, verse 9, Paul addresses briefly these same false teachers. He tells Titus to avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, and that's their mythology about the Old Testament people and places. Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, and quarrels about the law. He's saying don't even engage with them. John extends this to all of you. All believers need to silence the false teachers in your life. Don't let false teaching into your home. John says in 2 John verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him, it takes part in his wicked works. Churches always have a tendency because we, we live by the creed of love, loving the brethren. We have a tendency to want to compromise for the sake of unity in the church. But when it comes to false teaching, never compromise. When it comes to false teaching, understand that unity, the only true unity, comes upon the foundation of God's word. And if you depart from that foundation, then any unity you have is a false unity. In verse 13, Paul tells Titus to rebuke them sharply. If they refuse to cease and desist in spreading their false teaching, then church discipline must be exercised by the elders and the church must put them out. Paul says, and I read verse 9 a moment ago from chapter 3 about avoiding foolish controversies, genealogies, and quarrels about the law. And then in verse 10, Paul says, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. That's because false teaching is a spiritual cancer in the church, and you don't mess around with cancer. You cut it out and get rid of it, because otherwise it will spread and it will destroy. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And Paul said to the Galatian church, he said, if anyone, preach, anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. The foundation of the church of Jesus Christ 
is the truth of God's word. From God's word, we get our theology, who God is, who we are, what the universe is. We get our theology from the word of God. From our theology, we develop our worldview. From our worldview, we develop our values. And from our values, we develop our choices. We make our choices in life. And when we make our choices, that determines our actions in the world. It begins with the word of God. Make sure that it is the foundation of your life. Make sure it is always the foundation of your church. And if you ever see false teaching in this pulpit, in our classrooms, in our Bible studies, in any setting, make sure that you work with the leadership to silence it. Let's pray. Father, you have given us what we have learned from the writings of Paul, the deposit of the truth of Scripture. This is revealed truth from heaven. This is totally sufficient for all our needs in life. And Lord, you have told us that we must not only live by it, but we must protect it and rebuke those who contradict it. Father, I pray for your protection upon this church. I pray for your protection upon our presbytery, our denomination. I pray for your protection upon the, the Bible-believing churches of our society, our civilization, and throughout the world. And Lord, thank you that you've opened our eyes to see. You've opened our ears to hear. You've changed our hearts to receive the very word of God and the one whom it presents to us in all his glory, the Lord Jesus Christ, the only Savior of sinners. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.